Fagan, Netanyahu, Trump, Biden, COVID, bioterrorism, Iran, and Winston Churchill. If you think those things can't all come together on one podcast interview, think again. Our special guest this week, Tevi Troy, presidential historian and former deputy secretary of Health and Human Services. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's limited liability podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we got a great guest ahead, somebody who I think a lot of our listeners probably know and read and have heard uh, give interviews and and talks, Uh, somebody uh, who has been in government uh, for many years in the past, uh, written a lot of books. I'll give a quick bio, but then uh, well, can I just say one of the yeah, all-time one of the all-time Republican menches in the in in the body politic? Uh, that too, I would agree with that sentiment. And someone who shares one piece of biography with you as a former Jewish uh, liaison for the White House. We we we, we prefer to be called uh, Jay Lotus. A former J Lotus. A former J Lotus. <laughs> All right. Get the bio. And if J Lo is out there, you are welcome on the podcast as well. That's Teddy right. Troy right. is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, former Jewish liaison and senior advisor to former President George W. Bush, and a best selling presidential historian. Dr. Troy has a BS in industrial and labor relations from Cornell, an MA and PhD in American Civilization from the University of Texas at Austin, Hookham. He lives in Maryland with his wife and four children. Tevi Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know I love Jewish Insider, and I love the podcast, and it is just a thrill to be here. It's like it's longtime listener, first-time caller, right? I think exactly. it's uh, – I love it. I love it. And reader. And reader. As a, par- as a parenthetical here, when I was first named Jewish Liaison, Tevi Troy was one of the first people who reached out to me to offer his support and guidance. And as much as we say we're in a bad time of, of bipartisan or non-bipartisanship these days, um, among the Jewish liaisons of the United States, bipartisanship is alive and well. And I just wanted to note that for all of our listeners that uh, Tevi Troy was actually one of the first people to reach out to me when I got that, that amazing assignment. So Tevi, right. you have a piece out in Tablet, comparing Ben-Gurion, Begin, and Netanyahu, and the common thread being that they're all avid readers. So for those of us who haven't read it, I did, and Rich did, but for those of us, assuming there are one or two listeners who haven't read it, take us through the piece and uh, why you were moved to write it. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And when I saw Netanyahu was reelected, and I realized that he really is now one of the three most influential prime ministers in Israeli history, I tried to think about what commonalities he had with the other two most important influential prime ministers. And I quickly came to this fact that they were all big readers. Now, as you guys know, I'm fascinated by what leaders read. And I wrote a book called What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted about what presidents read and watched and how that influenced them. So I thought it'd be an interesting exercise to look in the reading habits of these three very influential prime ministers. And even though they came from different perspectives and the, the two of them were more on the right, and obviously Ben-Gurion was more on the left, 
they did have this shared commonality of being big readers, and it gave them a sense of the majesty of Jewish history and their role in history and how they could affect history. And that's why I thought it was worth looking at their reading habits. Netanyahu, obviously, now coming back for his third time as prime minister uh, to be the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history, in some ways overtaking those other two uh, from a historical perspective in certain ways, certainly in length of tenure. What makes Bibi tick, in your view, having studied him uh, over the many years? I think it is this sense of history he had. I mean, in one podcast interview that he had, he asked what he, he was asked what he reads by uh, Dan Senor. He said, "History books my guide." He sees himself as an agent of history and someone who can shape history in ways that others can't. And that's one of the reasons why I think he keeps running and doesn't retire from the scene, even though in the piece I say he could learn from history to go out on top is, is an important lesson. But he sees himself as someone who is important for the Jewish people, the development of Israeli history, and that other people in the same spot would not be as helpful and would not move things in the right direction. I think that's why he continues to stay on scene. And, you know, I've heard him talk uh, a couple times in person, and he refers to himself as the the prime minister of the Jewish people. Um, What do you make of that? I mean, that's one that always uh, I'm kind of left scratching my head. Um, I guess it would be like when Mike Bloomberg used to say, I'm the mayor of the largest Jewish city in the world. Um, But what do you make of him and and that that sort of position uh, and, and, you know, Clearly, his, you talked about a sense of history, but but going so far as to say I'm the prime minister of the Jewish people. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because you wonder who is the prime minister of the Jewish people. And obviously, we've had some real sad losses in recent years with Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs passing away and Elie Wiesel passing away, who could also presumably make a claim to that. Uh, we still obviously have Natan Sharansky. Uh, I mean, these are the titans of the Jewish people. And maybe there are some Jews who are more famous, let's say a Mark Zuckerberg. But he's not famous as being a Jewish leader. He's famous for other stuff, and he happens to be Jewish. So Bibi is certainly in that pantheon. I think the Bloomberg thing's a little different because it's just a factual statement. He is the he was the mayor of the largest Jewish city in, in America, whereas Bibi is prime minister of Israel, and he's making a claim to be prime minister of the Jewish people. But I think he does have a point in that he is one of the most important leaders, if not the most important leader of the Jewish people right now. So I don't know if I use the phrase prime minister, but he's definitely in that pantheon. There's definitely, to, to, to use the phrase, some listeners will know Lahavdil. If, if, you, uh, if you don't know it, you, you'll, you'll Google it. Um, you know, like the Russian czar historically was the czar of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and all of the Russians, you know, throughout the world. And, and in some ways, Putin sees himself as the leader of all Russians, wherever they are in the world, um, which actually in some ways colors his, his views towards Israel and, and the Russian Jews that are there as well. I say Lahavdil because we do have times throughout our history where Jews are in trouble somewhere in the world. Think of Mumbai uh, in, in recent memory, where the Israeli military, the Israeli prime minister, whether it's Netanyahu or not, does view themselves as post-World War II, this is why Israel's here. We are going to project the force to save Jews if they are in trouble and the host government is incapable or unwilling to to help them. Think Munich, think, you know, all, all these sorts of, of and, or issues. Or Entebbe. 
and Tebby. Obviously, in those cases, we have Israelis, you know, specifically under attack. So it makes perfect sense. But there are other cases where it's just Jews. And, and he clearly views himself in this Jabotinskyite um, narrative and, and Begin before him as, as somebody who will, will be on this conquest, you know, throughout the world to, to protect Jews. You talk about sort of Jabotinsky, obviously the mentor uh, for Begin uh, and an inspiration for Begin. Begin, an inspiration for Bibi. Uh, I'm curious your view of sort of how the mantle is, is moving down the line here, comparing Netanyahu to Begin, Beg, you know, Netanyahu to Jabotinsky. Historically, in your view, how is Netanyahu living up to the legacy in his own mind he's fulfilling? Yeah, it's a great question. And also you have to remember that Bibi has a separate link to Netanyahu in that his father, ben Sion Netanyahu, was secretary to Jabotinsky. So, uh, you know, in some ways the mantle is passed through Begin, but in other ways the mantle is passed through his father. And look, I think a lot of things that Jabotinsky said were, you know, came, came to be true. I mean, he, you know, the, the socialist vision of Israel that was both, I think, economically wrong, but also wrong in relation to how they were going to deal with the Arabs. Uh, I, I think the revisionists had a better view on these things. And so I, and, and I applaud Netanyahu, especially for what he's done to reshape Israel economically. And I think that we might look back in history and say his biggest accomplishment, and he's had a lot of accomplishments and a lot of them as prime minister, but we're his finance minister, where he re really helped make Israel into what has become, which is the, the startup nation, something like 10% of Israelis work in high tech. And Israel is just in a different place economically, and that allows it to be in a different place culturally and militarily because of those economic reforms. So I, I would suspect that were Jabotinsky to come back, I think he would be he would be generally pleased with BB and his approach to things. So coming back to the present day, with the exception of the Trump years, BB pretty much already ha always had a democratic president to be sort of his foil. Um, you had Clinton, you had Obama, now we have Biden. And, and in some respects, it, you could say that it really has defined BB's premiership vis-a-vis -vis that relationship. How do you how do you see uh, the BB Biden dynamic playing out as opposed to maybe the BB Obama plan dynamic playing out? Uh, you know, how are they the same? How are they going to be different? You know about Bill Clinton. They used to say this thing about he, you may disagree with him on policy, but he's pro Israel in his kishkas, and that Obama didn't pass the kishkas test. And uh, I think that. Biden may be more in the Clinton camp in that there's disagreement on policies, but he, he's got a, a Kishka's affiliation with Israel. And I think that makes it a little easier in some ways. Uh, but that said, there are stark disagreements between the Biden administration's policies and where Bibi's likely going to want to go. I think he is effective politically as you, at using the Americans as a foil, but you have to be careful because America is Israel's most important ally and America provides a lot of, uh, a lot of assistance to Israel. So, it's a careful line to walk. I think BB has largely done it well, although I think that that speech to the joint session of Congress certainly hurt him in the views of, of congressional Democrats, and I think de Democrats uh, largely, and I think he, he would probably not do something like that again in the future. Uh, but it's definitely something that will complicate this next term that he has coming up. I got to tell you, I always thought the Kishkes text on Obama was absolute I don't want to use a foul, a foul language on a podcast, but I always thought it was 
not true. Uh, and was total Michigas in that it was something that was invented during the Democratic primary because uh, at least early on, a lot of mainline Democratic Jews were supporting Secretary Clinton in the primary against Barack Obama. And that was like a very common refrain, at least in New York, that, oh, Obama doesn't get Jews in his kishkas and he doesn't get the U.S.-Israel relationship and he's from Chicago. I just And then it took on a life of its own. And then because uh, Bibi and Barack Obama were never going to go golfing together ever, uh, to put it mildly, I think it kind of became – uh, accepted as fact, but I don't know. I and then, we, and, then I, we, and then we read his last book and realized it was all true. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Re, re, listen, uh, having having you know been up close and personal, um, he he may not have understood East Coast Jews in the way that Hillary Clinton did um, because he was from Chicago and came up in Chicago politics. But to, you know, I, anyway, that was just a sorry to get on my soapbox for a minute. I, I knew you weren't going to like it, Jared, but but it is no, a large, no. it is a larger perception out there, and there is a hundred percent yes, yeah, and, and, and there's a sense that uh, you know even Biden he says you know I, I know BB for forty years, I love BB. Um, you know Obama and BB had a terrible relationship, and this also gets Absolutely. to a broader question of what does pro Israel mean? I think pro Israel means you are supportive of the state of Israel regardless of which party is in charge. So I support the state of Israel when Labor's in charge, when Meretz is in charge, when Likud's in charge, whoever's in charge, I'm, I support the state of Israel. That doesn't mean I agree with all his policies. But I think you do have some people on the left who say they don't support Likud and they don't support Israel when Likud's in charge. I think that's put to the test when, let's say, you have a Bennett-Lapid government and they don't seem much friendlier towards Israel in that circumstance either. So I think it gets to this very complicated question of what pro-Israel means. And, and can I follow up on that, Tevi? Please. Because you know we we saw a lot of hubbub with uh, former national director of the ADL, Abe Foxman, making some for him pretty provocative statements about what he thinks about the potential incoming Israeli government coalition government, right? Because they haven't formed yet. Uh, but he he basically said that if if Ben Gavir and some of these more extremist elements are in the government, Israel will have lost him. And and Abe Foxman is not known as like a big lefty. Um, you know, he 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 was more critical of the Obama government than probably anybody save Donald Trump uh in terms of its relationship with Israel, right? And and Donald Trump was more about the the, the personality and 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 who he was as a person. So Nobody's ever going to accuse Abe Foxman of not being pro-Israel. But what does it mean when a guy like Abe Foxman says, if we have some of these more extreme elements as part of the government, uh, they, they will have lost me? Yeah, I was surprised to see that statement by Foxman. Because here, here's my general take on Foxman, whom I know and I, I like. I always felt that no matter what, he was against anti-Semitism in all its manifestations, wherever it appeared. So I might not agree yes. with him on some people he called out, but he, if he saw anti-Semitism, he was going to go for it. And I don't feel like the current ADL leadership does that. I think there are blinders to some extent on anti-Semitism from the left that they don't really want to address. I think they've gotten better at it recently and they're trying. There, there is some sense that they want, they want to talk about it. But for the most part, they really want to focus on anti-Semitism from the right. And, and, they, and they also conflate conservative policies with anti-Semitism, which I think is really egregious. I mean, obviously, the, the, the clear op-ed that would have made more sense right now would have been, you know, Ben Gavir should just give like a million dollars to the ADL and they, you know, maybe Ooh. everything. Oh, is, is this Ooh. thing on? Is this thing on? Whoa. Just kidding. Whoa. Just kidding. <laughs> just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Jonathan. I love you. Just oh, kidding. Uh, yeah, but I, actually, I was told yeah, that that money didn't go to ADL. Do you guys know if that's? 
I mean, the money was given to charity at the behest of ADL, but it didn't necessarily go straight to ADL. Do you, do you guys know if that's right or wrong? I've heard that. I've heard that. We will. We, we invite Jonathan Greenblatt back on to, to, to talk about that and, and to clear his name after after I just invoked it in, 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 wow. su- in such a way. I <laughs> Strong supporter of the ADL. Strong supporter of the ADL. No, but I, I, anyway. you know, I like the concept of the ADL, but I also have questions about how it's been acting lately. So... Uh, and especially as a time when we see rising anti-Semitism, and this gets back to your question about the prime minister of the Jews. I and mean, what do we do when you see rising anti-Semitism against Jews around the world? Who is supposed to take the mantle in addressing that? And maybe that should be Israel. Maybe Israel can call out anti-Semitism wherever it appears in a way that, let's say, an American organization might not be able to. I mean, I think we do need to rethink how we are going to address rising anti-Semitism that is taking place both in America and in other countries in the diaspora. I'd like to unpack this in a way where we combine a lot of the questions that Jared's already asked you and you've already touched on. Bibi Netanyahu as prime minister for all the Jews of the world, a new coalition that is clearly setting off uh, people who have in the past appeared to be more mainstream center left in pro-Israel politics, like an Abe Foxman, in addition to giving cover and new ammunition to traditional detractors of Israel. The fact that there is this dynamic where Bibi just, as luck has it, uh, except for the Trump years, and maybe even I'm in some way, including the Trump years, making it even worse, the fact that we have a right of center prime minister with a left of center president over and over again, and then the lightning rod that Trump was divisively with U.S. politics, you know, it, it didn't help us that that there was a close relationship between uh, Bibi and Trump uh, from a political perspective, the United States, from a partisan perspective, not help policy-wise, obviously, a great help policy-wise. The dynamic now is a Jewish body politic that I don't really understand, almost. It's so fractured. It's so divisive. And that is really undermining the Jewish community at its core. I'd love for you to reflect on sort of where is the Jewish body politic today on, on these issues, on Israel, the parts and divides between the community, how that's playing out? Yeah, it's, it's a really good and complicated question. So as you guys know, the general Jewish community split is you can take a bet on any election and taking place in America. You don't know who the two participants are going to be, but between a Democrat and a Republican, the Democrats likely to get 70 or so percent and the Republicans likely to get 30 or so percent. It can go up or down, but that, that's a general rule of thumb. Now, that doesn't mean... 30%, only 30% of American Jews are pro-Israel because there's a lot of pro-Israel Democrats too. So you've got to add that in there. And then you have the rising Orthodox percentage where Orthodox Jews are much more likely to be Republican than uh, than Democrats and then, then secular Jews are likely to be Republican. So let's say the, the split on the Orthodox side is probably 70-30 Republican. Uh, Orthodox Jews are, let's say, 10% of the population and a growing percentage and a larger percentage of younger Jews are Orthodox. So that's the reason why, Rich, you say that we've got a very complicated development within the American Jewish community. It's hard to point to where the community is. You don't have one spokesperson who can speak for the entire Jewish community. That's why the hope is that perhaps an Israeli leader could do it. I understand that Bibi is not loved by people on the American Jewish left, but you, it would help the Jewish community to have people who could be spokespeople for the entire community. 
Yeah, but I, 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 I want to just weigh in there because so two, with two things. One is I remember a meeting very early on when I worked in the White House as a Jewish liaison, and I got dragged to a meeting on something that I knew nothing about. And somebody very senior at the table said to me, well, what does the Jewish community think about this? And I remember like taking a long pause and just saying, like, which one are you talking about? Because we're actually, you know, many communities that uh, have pretty much consensus on Israel. Obviously, there are some outliers on the left um, and one on the right. But but we're, uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody who, who, you know, who could wrangle that community. And in terms of BB being the like, you know, having this claim, I mean, no. I didn't vote for him. None, nobody on this podcast voted for him. So if he's going to be the prime minister of the Jews, you know, or the or the spokesman for the Jews, then let him like kind of run at the world's Zionist Congress. For, for, you know I, what I mean? I, Jared, Jared, I agree with that. But what I mean is that his policies, right, the government's policies still impact the diaspora in a big way. So not necessarily yeah. him representing, but we talk about religious implications of certain things. Where, Absolutely. Who is a Jew, conversion, access to the wall, all, you know, <laughs> all, all, all these, right? And this is part of the lightning rod stuff that's going on right now is you have um, reform Jews, conservative Jews, pe- people who, who who don't see Judaism through a traditional halakhic lens the way that the rabbinate in Israel would, really sort of fearing Smotrich and Ben-Gavir and, and some of these issues here. That does impact how the Jewish community of America feels about Israel at times of crisis, whether they're willing to organize, mobilize on behalf of Israel. I, I, I think the Israeli government needs to take it into an account with their own policies. Absolutely. This, this is a terrific point. And I actually just addressed this point recently. I was speaking to a Jinsa group of Israeli colonels from the military and they were asking, what can we do? What should we as Israel do? And I said, look, a lot of the criticism against Israel comes from the Palestinian issue. And you cannot unilaterally solve the Palestinian issue. Obviously, the Palestinians have to come to the table. But there are a lot of American Jews who are not Orthodox or in the Reform and Conservative communities, as, as Rich said. And I think you should make sure, to the extent possible, that Israeli government policies don't needlessly alienate those communities. If you're dismissive of Reform and Conservative Jews, and, and you guys know I'm an Orthodox Jew, but if you're dismissive of reforming conservative Jews, that alienates them. And I got to tell you guys, this this point speaks to me personally, right? I am a conservative Jew. I grew up in a conservative shul. Uh, I'm planning a bar mitzvah for my son in Israel next year. I want to go to the wall. I want to go to the Kotel. And the the politics of navigating how to pray, where to pray for a bar mitzvah ceremony in an egalitarian way and not potentially have people throw rocks at me or my family. Like that's not a, not a, you know, it's not something that doesn't register. And I think that it is totally overlooked by the Israeli body politic, just, just completely like, uh, and if at this moment, even though number, you know, growth rates in the, in the Orthodox community are disproportionately larger than the conservative reform movement Mm. at this moment, they, they, conservative and reform Jews make up a majority of American Jews, right? Like, the Israeli government and the Israeli body politic cannot ignore this factor because it's just going to get harder and harder. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a really wise point for you to bring up to this group of Israeli colonels. And, you know, to the extent that ministers and the incoming government are listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast, which we know they are, this is a hugely important thing that is within the control 
solely of the Israelis, right? As you pointed out, Palestinians got to want peace for there to be peace. But this is this is one thing that's all internal. And, and I hear, you know, from Israeli political perspective uh, on the right that that feels strongly on these issues, a response I've heard privately in the past has been, these are populations of Jews that are not coming to Israel on a regular basis. These are in some ways esoteric debates that they're having in the United States for, for most people who will not go to the Western Wall, who are not interested in, in, in visiting or have never visited, may never, right? The These sort of issues- This is like the chicken or the egg though, Rich, right? But, are but, people but not in, visiting the, because- Right. Because the well, rabbinate is saying you're not Jewish or you can't worship in a certain way. Or I, right. Right? I, I think no no, not just that, but it's like, well, well, that doesn't matter. If if there is a large group of of individuals in these denominations that do come to Israel, that are supporters of Israel, that donate to Israeli causes, whose families will want to figure out a bat mitzvah or something like that, you can't just say, well, ninety percent of the population is is not really you know, involved in the Jewish community, you know, they're not, you know, members of certain, you know, organizations, they're not, they're not coming to Israel, you know, whereas the, the Orthodox community is coming and that, that, it's just not true, right? It's just, it's just, that's just not how to look at it. And I feel like it is true that we are Americans. We don't vote. We don't pay taxes in Israel. It is hard for us to say, this is what Israeli policy should or shouldn't be since we don't decide to live there to influence that. Uh, but at the same time, this is a political reality. Yeah, look, I don't claim to uh, live or vote or pay taxes in Israel, but if these Israeli colonels are asking my advice, that's my advice, right? Don't alienate those populations. And it's not just the number of American Jews who visit or don't visit. It's the, also the question of to what extent the denominations have a foothold in Israel. And the, look, the fact is that conservative and reform are just much smaller in Israel than they are in the U.S., and that's why it's less a part of a conversation in Israel. Tevi, uh, you said something earlier on the percentages breakdown of Republican Democrats uh, on the Jewish community and, and where we've sort of seen them historically. I know you're very active with the Republican Jewish Coalition. Have been for many years. You served in a Republican administration, uh, obviously at a very senior level. I- I'm curious, in your view, are we at that historical level? forever? Is it the 70-30? You'll see some ebbs and flows, a little bit above 30, something below 30, depending on the president. Or do you buy into the idea that we may be on a slow trickle upward on the Republican vote share in this round of increases we've seen over the last you know, four, eight, you know, 12 years? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And when I talk to Republican candidates, I always tell them, don't expect a majority of the Republican vote of the Jewish vote to go Republican. And that's okay, right? You can get, if you get 40% of the Jewish vote as a Republican, you're in, in pretty good shape. I mean, DeSantis got over 40%. Uh, Lee Zeldin didn't win that race, but he got over 40%. And, and th- those are big deals. Chris Christie, I remember, got about 39%. So how you affect the margins that someone gets within the Jewish community also can have a real impact on the race. As George W. Bush learned in 2004, where he reduced the Democratic mar- margins in Cuyahoga County in, in Ohio and also in South Florida. And that really helped make a difference. He, without those two states, without actually Ohio, he, do- he doesn't become president. So I do think that there is a chance that the Jewish vote could tick upward because of these demographic things we're talking about. But I will not be 
advising any Republican candidate in my lifetime to expect a majority of the Jewish vote. That's just not how to view it. All right, Tavia, I want to shift gears for a second because you were an assistant secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services. Deputy secretary, actually. Sorry, deputy secretary. Oh, deputy. Makes deputy. a big difference. Oh, if you're I don't know. It, it is a big difference. It is a big difference. Deputy. Assistant secretaries are a dime a dozen. There's only one deputy secretary. Okay. So I, my apologies, first of all. Um, so I want to ask you about President Trump's handling of COVID and and President Biden's handling of COVID since he took over, and then get into a couple other topics that are sort of top of mind on HHS's uh, docket, and 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 where you see uh, the CDC going in the post COVID world because they were really sidelined during COVID, and it was really the NIH where a lot of the action was. Uh, so, would be interested to hear your take on that. Yeah, and thank you for raising this. This is a sub subject I, I care a lot about. I worked on these issues in the Bush administration. I've written a lot about the, the COVID response. And I look at it more as opposed to the Biden-Trump response. So the U.S. government was response. And the U.S. government response was inadequate. And there's no two ways about it. And we need to do, do better in the future. We had plans for this. And we had actually three layers of defense for how to deal with with these kind of types of disease with potential pandemics and all three layers, which is international monitoring, the ability to track, trace and isolate people who have the disease and the strategic national stockpile, all of them failed for a variety of reasons. We need to do better in the future. You mentioned, Jared, that uh, CDC was sidelined. I'm not sure the CDC was sidelined. I think CDC did a particularly poor job in dealing with this disease. They said that they were gonna create the test and they failed, they made a bad test and they couldn't get past it and they didn't let the private sector step in. So CDC really didn't do a good job. And Rochelle Walensky, also Jewish by the way, uh, when she took over and she's Biden's CDC head, she actually said that CDC didn't do a good enough job and they need to fix things in the future. I'm not a fan of her reform plan. I think she needs to go deeper. And I think one of the problems is that CDC has evolved into a behavioral health agency rather than an elite pandemic fighting agency. That means they're talking more about whether you drink that big soda or whether you wear a helmet when you ride a bicycle, um, a motorcycle, than how to stop a communicable disease going from person to person. And you could see this in terms of the, the staffing levels, what their pronouncements are, and their, their budgetary uh, allocations. So CDC really needs to focus either more on pandemic responses or allow a separate agency to develop that just focuses on this pandemic stuff. So I think that would be one reform that I would recommend to see if we could do better on these problems in the future. Two, two other agencies I'd love you to reflect on. One, FDA their failures, lessons learned uh, through the pandemic. Uh, I, I, I saw in my, my private sector hat um, some incredible uh, stories uh, of, let's call them challenges uh, within, within the administration, um, which hopefully can be overcome for the future. And then the World Health Organization, we talk about international monitoring, uh, your views on sort of WHO, its failings, where it should go from here. Obviously, they're talking about updating some of the IHR, the international health regulations, um, what you'd like to see out of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the World Health Organization, I'll address that one first, is a large, cumbersome bureaucracy. You can't really expect it to be an elite pandemic fighting unit. It is good for sharing information and making big pronouncements. So I would like to see the, the WHO do better. But I, I think the U.S. should partner with its key allies in terms of creating maybe some kind of international pandemic fighting institution that is not necessarily 
the UN, the UN of health, which is what the, the WHO is. And I thought, look, I think the Chinese presence in the, in the WHO makes it hard to assess what's going on in China. And a lot of these diseases are coming from China and the WHO isn't going to look into it as carefully as they should because of China's presence on it and how, and how influential China is in the WHO. So we need to see improvements in the WHO, but again, also potentially a different organization where maybe the G7 or the G8 or some entity like that creates a better unit that is more responsive to the actual disease challenges than, than opposed to the larger world politics. Uh, in terms of the FDA, look, the, I think the FDA needs to do better at allowing therapies to move forward more quickly, obviously in a, in a safe way. Um, I was encouraged by some aspects I saw of Operation Warp Speed, where we got the vaccine out faster than we would have without that kind of push. Uh, but I also was discouraged by how FDA worked with CDC to prevent private sector entities from developing the test. So obviously, we're going to need some real reforms at FDA and CDC going forward. And look, COVID was terrible. We lost over a million lives. It has a $16 trillion or so dollar impact on our economy. Uh, but it also, in some ways, could have been worse. And I think we learned a lot. And I hope we will take those learnings and do better on this in the future. And Tevi, can I just parse something you said a second ago? Um, so we talked about how the FDA did not do a very good job in terms of bringing tests to market, right? Do you think that that was ameliorated or done better when it came to bringing vaccines to market? Because um, it seems like to the casual observer who is not, and I'm, you are a policy, you, know, you were the deputy secretary of HHS, so much closer to this issue, but it seemed like we went from a outbreak to a vaccine really quickly, um, both on the, the warp speed side, but also on the um, vaccines that were developed privately. And the FDA, it seems like, did a pretty good job with the emergency use authorization and, 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 and moving that along. Is that, is that accurate? It's largely accurate. Look, the, the testing thing was more CDC's problem, but the CDC used FDA as the enforcer to tell other private sector, sector entities not to develop their own tests, like stop what right. you were doing is literally what FDA told certain entities right. on the West Coast when they were trying to develop a test. Um, in, in terms of Operation Warp Feed, again, and, and the vaccines in, in general, I think the FDA did do a good job under very trying circumstances. But first of all, I think we as a federal government should have had some kind of coronavirus vaccine or countermeasure beforehand. In fact, I wrote in a 2016 book, Shall We Wake the President, about the danger of coronavirus, not SARS-CoV-2, because I didn't know the strain existed then, but the danger of coronavirus and how we had nothing in the strategic national stockpile to deal with coronaviruses. So we really needed to be more on the ball on that to begin with. Now, I know we got the vaccine in less than a year, which is good, but we should have had something on the shelf beforehand. My, my general thesis on the answer to your question, Jared, and that's heavy, I don't know if you agree or disagree, just having viewed this as an advisor on the outside, is Operation Warp Speed took an enormous amount of political pressure uh, to be brought to bear on an agency that is supposed to be independent, values its independence, and does not want any politician meddling in its business. But it got the job done and got the vaccines out in record time. And also the euphoria of the vaccines and the focus, the total focus on vaccines instead of testing. Also, I think at that moment, once the vaccines came online, everybody sort of felt like, oh, the pandemic's probably going to be over now, right? We're going to have the vaccines. Everything's going to be good. So the lack of focus on testing because all resources are going to Operation Warp Speed on the vaccine, 
then you get the vaccine. Everybody's saying, well, we have the vaccine now. We don't need to focus so much on testing. And then once Trump loses re-election and it's clear there is a transition going on, you could just feel the agency just take themselves back and say, the political pressure on us is never going to happen again. We are pushing back. Everything is going to be slow rolled. We're not moving forward. And Biden rolls in saying, you know, we're not going to be politicizing the FDA. We're not going to be pushing people the way Trump did. Allows the FDA to sort of get away with murder of not approving testing and getting things out there as we needed. We're going into new strains and new variants. And we realize, oh, my, I guess testing really needed to be continuing on this track, even with the vaccines. I know people like Dr. Michael Minow, I'm sure you've read or out there have been beating the drum on this, but that's sort of my take on it. And, and I hope we've learned a lesson. I, I, don't, I don't know if we have. but Yeah, let me just say, I, I largely agree with Rich, but let me just say on testing, testing is much more valuable at the beginning. And there are other countries, including Thailand, for example, that developed a good test early. And once the disease was pandemic, once it was spread throughout the population, the testing just wasn't as beneficial. So we really fell behind on testing early, and that was a real problem. And I hope that is something that we don't have to deal with in the future. All right, Rich. Let's. I, I want to shift gears. I want to shift yeah, gears. Yeah, shift as gears, and then, and then we have to get the and then we have to get the lightning. Oh, round. We're going to get know, lightning. We're going to get lightning. I know, I know but I know we want to ask Tevi about about Iran because if we have him and we don't ask him about Iran, Rich's head's going to explode. So, Rich, go ahead. Uh, it's, it's it's not going to explode. It's not going to explode. <laughs> what do you think about Iran, Tevi? What do you think about Iran? What's going on? I mean, obviously, we went through the Obama years of the Iran deal. Trump getting out maximum pressure. BB obviously a core issue for him. He views his legacy, but you know over time, you know, sort of has not taken out the Iranian nuclear program, so to speak. Uh, the threat apparently appears to be as great as ever, as you see their enrichment program expanding and, and everything going on there. But we still have this discord between the White House and the Israeli government on the value of an Iran nuclear deal, even with everything we see with the protests and, and Russia. Your take on the trajectory so far and what, and what you think is going to happen. Yeah, thank you for the question. And I don't want to claim to be an Iran expert. And Rich, you are much more expert on this than I. And I do learn don't, a lot. Don't encourage him, Tevi. You're going to get a compliment too, Jared. Hold on. <laughs> I learn a lot from the exchanges between you guys on this yeah. podcast. And you've had some really good guests on, on the subject as well. But my thought on this is I don't think a deal, right, that the deal that the, the Biden administration may or may still not still be negotiating is going to solve the problem. I don't think the absence of a deal is going to solve the problem. I think you need some paradigm changer to solve the problem. Uh, one of those paradigm changers is kinetic action, which you know I think has a lot of problems with it, and I'm not advocating it. Uh, another is if Iran, uh, the current abhorrent government, falls, which you know we're seeing these protests in, in Iran, and I think that would be a much preferable, uh, a more optimal result. But I don't think that if the two alternative pathways are Deal or no deal, neither one is going to solve the problem. And we really need to, you know, I hate the cliche, but think outside the box, find some other way to address this. Well, and Tevi, that's an interesting point, right? Because, uh, you know, people who think that the deal never could work or no deal could work, you know, they're advocating maximum pressure, but then, you know, taken through to its, to its ultimate conclusion if it, you know, maximum pressure doesn't work unless the credible threat of a military, you know, some something kinetic, as you put it, exists. And, you know, there are lots of problems with that course of action also. So 
any any ideas about you know what uh, the, the sort of ultimate um, mix or paradigm shift could be? I mean, do we really think that the the regime in Iran is likely to fall in the next eighteen months? I mean, and, and, and here's how I will take that question and put it together, wrapping it a bow for the presidential prime minister historian with Netanyahu. comparing (laughs) himself most of all to Winston Churchill in recent interviews. What, what would Churchill do? What will Netanyahu do? What should, what would Netanyahu need to do to actually fulfill his vision as, as, as being the Churchill of modern day? Yeah. Look, the reason I have problems with the deal is because it is giving concessions and a great deal of money to Iran for a deal that will not solve the problem or stop Iran from engaging in its terroristic behavior. And they don't even claim to be addressing that in the deal. So that's why I have a problem with the deal. I think that, I don't know what Churchill would have done. Look, I mean, the the way he eventually addressed the issue of Nazi Germany was this massive war in which tens of millions of people died. So that's obviously not the optimal approach either. I don't know if the regime can fall in 18 months, but I think if there are things we can do to help that facilitate it without allowing them to say, look at the great Satan, which is trying to undermine us. I think we should try and find ways to do that because that could be one of those paradigm shifters. And so I think if I'm BB, I want to be looking at ways that you can get a different government in Iran rather than kinetic action or a deal that I don't think is going to work. All right, Tevi. You, you are a longtime listener of the Jewish Insider Living Availability podcast, so you know at this stage of the pod, we go to the lightning round. So the first question for you is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase, and profanity is allowed as long as it's in a different language. It is not profane, but my favorite Yiddish phrase is trep chachma, which means step wisdom. That's when you think of the great retort after you've left the room. It's just this great Yiddish way of expressing this supreme frustration where I had this conversation and I wish I had said X. So trep chachma, step wisdom. I mean, I have that pretty much every time we do a podcast. <laughs> I, you know, think of the perfect thing to say after we've done recording. All right, Rich, go ahead. Uh, favorite U.S. president to a presidential historian? I, I'm going to have to do two because my favorite overall U.S. president is Lincoln, which is, I know, a bit of a cliche, but he was amazing and so thoughtful and a great writer and really held the country together at a key moment. The favorite president in my lifetime is Ronald Reagan, great communicator, uh, really helped bring the U.S.-Israel relationship to a good place, especially by making the Republican Party more pro-Israel, but also just a guy who had a vision and moved forward with it and really helped shape the Republican Party in the process. All right. Favorite Israeli prime minister? Uh, I, I happen to be a Begin fan. I love what, what a big reader he was. I love how thoughtful he was. And that, that thing I, I'd never heard before until I listened to your last podcast with Lahav, where Daniel Kurtzer was boycotting the Begin government because it was too right wing. And as she rightly pointed out, he's the guy who made peace with the Egyptians. And I'll, here's a great story for limited liability listeners. My father invited Begin to my bar mitzvah. And I have a laminated telegram from Begin sending his regrets that he was unable to make it. You got Bagan, I got Al Gore's letter. That, that, that's how it worked out for me. Last question for an avid reader, historian, and historian of leaders who read. What's your favorite book? I happen to love Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. This is a book about 
kind of what, what we're seeing today with wokeness uh, long before we'd ever heard of wokeness, but it's, it's a book about what happens when you don't teach the right ideas or the, um, the classic ideas of your civilization, if you don't pass it on from generation to, to generation. So that, that's a terrific book that really meant a lot to me. Obviously, if you're listening, many Tevi Troy books as well, uh, which are classics, but you're not allowed to use your own book uh, for that answer. He yeah, already knew yeah, that. You should have so. told him so that, by the way. I, I think he knew it was the, that was the rule. That, that was implied. That was implied. Tevi Troy, former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, Senior Administration Official in the Bush Administration, Presidential Historian, and all-around good guy. Thanks for joining Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.